Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy. Before we hop into the podcast, you've heard us talking about it for a while. The AC Conference is back. We're titling it Branded Rethinking Identity. You can take it in in two different locations. The first one will be in Saskatchewan on February 10th to the 11th at Briarcrest College and Seminary. And the second one will be held at Northview Community Church in Abbotsford, BC on March 3rd to the 4th. You can head to conference.apologeticscanada.com for more information on the speakers and the addresses. And the second thing we want to let you know of is we are right in the midst of our giving campaign that is going on until the end of the year. To remind you, it is a matching goal. So we have the opportunity of raising $200,000 Thank you for those of you who have already donated, and we just continue to prayerfully ask that you would consider partnering with Apologetics Canada. Hello and welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy, and welcome to part two of our series that we're calling Miracles, Signs, and Wonders. In this episode, we're talking about the signs of His love and what miracles point to. So last week when we looked at miracles, we had to really be careful not to jump into signs, but... When you talk about miracles, you just can't help but want to talk about signs because they are so interconnected. And that's 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 important to appreciate that the Bible doesn't have miracles in it just to have miracles. And that that's kind of unique because you will see that in some religions, right? Or you know, just be like, oh, and this miraculous thing just happened, sort of idea. And the Bible, miraculous things aren't just happening. They are they are signs pointing to something. This is it's important to remember that when you're jumping into the biblical narrative, you're you are jumping into a story that is a uh, cohesive story that is telling one story. And so these signs, these these miracles are pointing in the direction of what we talked about last week, you know, God's divine agency that's accomplishing his purposes. And mm-hmm. so these things then are interconnected and we need to be careful not to separate them. But I don't know about you guys, but I find a lot of Christians tend to want to separate the 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 miracle from the sign and it just becomes this divine thing that Jesus is doing, like just a good dude doing a good good deed. Hmm. Well, and I think we see that in the sense of like if Jesus's intention was to heal all of the sick people, he would have healed all the sick people. But we know he didn't. We know that there were sick people <laughs> who Jesus never got around to getting to, or there were, you know, um, any other uh, demon-possessed people, so on and so forth. And so I think uh, there's a purpose and an intention in the miracles that we see, particularly in the New Testament, of pointing to God's plan, God's glory, and ultimately Jesus's messiahship and his claim to be God. That's that's a great point, Wes. I, I, I'm just reminded of like the woman with the issue of blood who, you know, scripture says she tried everything. And, and here she is in the midst of a crowd that Jesus is walking through. He's crowded around by people that are all asking him for something. But Jesus doesn't stop until someone grabs the hem of his garment. And it's and he says that my power left me. Someone touched me. And it was this, it's like this idea that Jesus is surrounded by all kinds of people who are physically touching him. But it wasn't until there was a person that was really trying to pull on the person of Jesus in a, from desperation that Jesus saw an opportunity to show that a desperate pursuit of him 
that's where a miracle can happen. Since we're talking about the signs, right? Um, it might be helpful to just talk about what signs actually do. And the signs are really never about themselves, or they point to something else. Like, I, I mean, I see signs all the time on the road. Um, when I drive into Edmonton, let's say, it'll say, hey, here is a, here's the white mud drive. You know, and I'm like, okay, that's where I'm going, you know, those kinds of things. And the sign is not just there, but it's actually supposed to, I'm supposed to interact with it. That's one thing. And when I follow through with it, I'm supposed to kind of come to a certain place. Right. And, and so I think we could think about miracles uh, in those ways as well as, as signs that point to something else. Can, can we first just reflect on the fact that there's a place in Edmonton called White Mud? Thank you. We're not going to just blow <laughs> past that. Like, Not a chance. There is a sign that says, hey, come here to this place called White Mud. Man, you really are in just the roughest place ever. <laughs> It's like it's not mud, it's white mud. It's what does that just uh, mean snow? Uh, yeah, like is that is that yeah, you're talking about snow in snow. Alberta? <laughs> this is an important grid. This idea of signs is an important grid that you need to put over the Bible when you're reading it. Because if you don't do that, you'll get confused really quickly, as I did early on in ministry when I'm reading the New Testament, for example, and I'm preparing for a sermon. It can be difficult to appreciate what you're reading if what you think you're reading is just like if we're like in the book of Matthew, for example, we're reading the nativity scene, that we're just reading what Matthew remembers. Oh, yeah, that's right. This was told to me. Or, oh, that's right. I saw this. And, oh, I remembered that. It's like, no, 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 that, that is not what's happening here. Matthew is telling you specific things that he saw that were signs pointing to the identity of Jesus that he wants you to give a lot of thought to and consideration that this isn't just some Jewish dude, you know, born in the first century, you know, he's raising important questions about the identity uh, of this Jesus. In particular, you see this in Matthew's account, for example, and oftentimes this just slips right past us. When we read in chapter 1, verse 21, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give his name Jesus. Now, of course, you know, names mean a lot in that time. They still mean something today, but particularly in that time where it means God saves. And then notice, because he will save his people from their sins. And this is the big question. Will he? Can he? Who's capable of doing this? And so the identity of Jesus becomes significant in this as he's referred to, right, in verse 22, 23 as Emmanuel. Like, how are we going to be saved by our sins? Well, this is God with us in the flesh becoming this question, is he really? How am I to know? And you start to read then in uh, Matthew chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, leading up to Jesus' sermon in chapter 5. And what does Matthew tell you about this Jesus? Well, he tells you some really significant things. I, I think that's a really good point, Andy, in that uh, understanding what the Gospels are, and that can help us understand what the focus is. I mean, the Gospel authors aren't just coming up with an exhaustive list of the things that they happen to remember about Jesus and, and putting them down. Like, they're very purposeful 
with what their intention is. And that leads to how they frame, if you want to call it their thesis. Um, you know, even you're talking about Matthew. Yeah. Uh, Matthew presents Jesus as a fulfillment of Jewish expectations, like you said, like the expectation is that the Messiah would come and do something really amazing, but it's not the expectation you think it is. It's not overthrowing the Romans, and particularly yeah. in fulfilling the Davidic reign, as well as Jesus being the new and greater Moses, right? We, I think you could even argue that we see that, that Jesus and Moses both come out of Egypt. Moses crosses the Red Sea. Jesus baptizes in the Jordan River. Moses is in the wilderness 40 years. Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days. You know, Moses receives the law on a mountain. Jesus gives a new law from a mountain. Like, this is very purposeful in pointing, okay, you know, the Jewish people are very focused for a good reason on Moses and the law, uh, Leviticus, right? But that Matthew's coming around and he's saying, no, no, Jesus, he's, he's more than Moses. In fact, he's the one who gave Moses his prerogative, gave Moses his marching orders. Yeah. And speaking of Leviticus, Andy, uh, one story that really stands out from the synoptics, uh, since you're mentioning all the skin disease and those kinds of things, uh, in Matthew chapter 8, the story of Jesus cleansing the leper, right? This comes right after the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that really stands out is typically in Leviticus, right? If you touch something unclean, you become unclean. But here's Jesus touching somebody unclean, and he becomes clean. Right. And so this is a, a, I mean, the, the audience would have noticed that right here is somebody who, so, so what does that say about who he is? And just to kind of, to connect it with what you were saying too, Wes, is I've always found it really interesting, especially as I've been studying the gospel of Matthew recently, is this is a Jewish man writing to the Jewish audience. He's the guy who puts in the great commission at the end. Right, he he's got his sights to all people, Gentiles included, and that's one of the signs, if you will, that you see when the magi or the wise men actually come to worship Jesus. And here are foreign dignitaries that come to worship the King of Kings. Isn't he's not just the Jewish King, but he's the King of Kings. But anyway, I just I've been just really falling in love with the Gospel according to Matthew recently. One of the things that you see developing there with regards to what you're saying, Wes, and uh, what you just added there, Steve, is that Jesus is viewed by the Jews as overturning the law or getting rid of it because he's not behaving in ways that Jews normally behaved, right? Like you're talking about there, Steve, where he's, you know, instead of avoiding the unclean, he's touching the unclean, but he's healing the unclean. And you see in Jesus' sermon in Matthew chapter 5, where he says, verse 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so what Jesus is beginning to teach them is, listen, I'm not just overturning the law or trying to abolish. I'm fulfilling the law. And it's, it constantly is coming back to what Matthew's telling you that Jesus came to do, to forgive sins, to reconcile this broken world back into relationship with God and with one another. Yeah, and and you also see that in 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 Matthew 16 because whatever you're talking about signs, this passage always comes up and smacks me in the face where where it's 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 phrased as the demand for a sign and it reads the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, "When evening comes you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red." And in the morning 
Today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. (laughs) Jesus then left them and went away. So he drops this bomb on them. And for listeners, like the the sign of Jonah is, it's a foreshadow of the resurrection. It's a foreshadow of what Jesus is going to go through. And it's just really interesting because the Pharisees, it was a trap that I don't think they know that they were trying to set for Jesus. That Jesus isn't just a, you know, you don't just put a coin in a slot and you get a miracle. And at the same time, what Jesus is saying is if you just keep, you could keep asking me for signs, but unless your heart changes and really sees me as the Messiah, then all you're ever going to want is is just me to produce, to conjure up something awesome. Well, and then Luke fills out the story in, in his telling of that particular one in Luke chapter 11, because in that one immediately beforehand, Luke tells us that Jesus actually did a sign, that he had cast out a man who was demon-possessed. And they accused him of, you know, doing this by the power of Satan. So ironically, when Luke tells us the story, in filling out some more of the details, right, to focus on his purpose and how he's trying to uh, tell the story of Jesus, they'd actually been given a sign. And they're exactly what you said, Troy, their attitude was so focused on something else that they were missing the forest for the trees because they just wanted something that in their own kind of personal motivations, they wanted to get to the bottom of. Can I just say that uh, one of my favorite miracles in in the in the gospels is the changing of water into wine and not just because i love a good wine but what i love about this miracle is it begins jesus's ministry it is the sign that is kicking off his his work and and it's interesting because jesus doesn't want, he's he's like i don't know i don't want to i don't want to start that yet right i don't want that sign that's pointing to me yet sort of idea. And Jesus' mom is like, no, you're ready. And <laughs> right. It's just this beautiful thing where Get in the pool. you've got Emmanuel, right? God with us. And yet it's his ministry gets kicked off through his mother and her challenging him saying, no, you're, you're ready. <laughs> and, uh, and this becomes the the start of his ministry that ultimately is going to demonstrate that that he has come to save us from our sins and I, I don't know if I don't know if you guys have thought about that much with regards to you know his ministry starting with his with his mom well I think what's interesting about that is even Jesus's ministry kicked off through relationship and this is something we've been saying all year even Jesus when he got started. You know, I, like I, I say this carefully. I don't want to say that Jesus needed Mary in the sense, but at the same time, Mary was instrumental in Jesus's development. She was asked to steward <laughs> the Lord. And so that means that, you know, a, a wisdom and understanding was bestowed to her by God in such a way to to guide Jesus. And so I think it's what it just really speaks of for me is one of the first signs is that Jesus any miracle is for the sake of establishing relationship. You know, uh, speaking of turning water into wine and signs and relationship, kicking off the ministry and everything, these signs, it was really pointing to who Jesus was. 
right? So at the end of John's 20th chapter, he says, yeah, Jesus did way more signs than this, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of yeah. God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so uh, a key part of it is who is Jesus? And what's really interesting is, uh, I mean, I mentioned studying Matthew a little bit. And if you see Jesus' interaction with other people, it's really when people have placed their faith in him. You know, that that's when stuff happens, right? Now, I'm not saying that, you know, if you don't have enough faith, these things, and it, that's not what I'm saying. But what really s- struck me was that when, for example, he came across the centurion, the Roman centurion whose servant was dying, this Roman centurion got it. Well, what was this thing that he got? It was that, well, mm. Jesus is the kind of guy who can actually do what the centurion wants him to do, right? I too am a man under authority, the centurion said. So if you just just say the word and this is going to happen, and that trust in Jesus, Jesus is actually really impressed by. With mm-hmm. no one in Israel have I found such faith. By the way, this has created a tension with how to even understand the New Testament, or at least what do you do with a document that dates very, very early, but yet you've got Jesus prophesying things that he shouldn't be able to prophesy, such as the destruction of the temple, which creates challenges with scholarship. How do we, how do we look at these books? How do we look at this? When he's prophesying these things uh, that happen years later, year in year 80, 70. And it's interesting when you read that and you see in the tension that just even exists in scholarship where you've got to make a choice. Peter Williams brings this up in his book, Can You Trust the Gospels? Wes, is this something that you've come across in your studies? Yeah, definitely. And I think I think there are two things going on at the same time. I think, you know, historians kind of have sometimes a better perspective than your average critic, because historians recognize that the supernatural is woven throughout all ancient writings. Because sometimes I hear the objection that, well, you know, the the biblical documents, the New Testament, the Gospels, well, they have all the supernatural stuff, so we can't count it as history. Well, if we did that with anything else, I mean, Tacitus, Xenophon, Plato, Homer, like there's... Suetonius. They're, yeah, they're all assuming that there's a supernatural world, that the gods are interacting within the physical universe, those things. So in one sense, scholars are more aware of that and they don't have a separate category for, you know, this religious stuff over here and then all of this other unbiased history. But when it comes to the credibility of certain things, yeah, you know, they, they dismiss the miraculous things for various reasons. I mean, I think some, it's a little bit of uh, intellectual snobbery that we know those things couldn't have happened and that these people are just exaggerating or they're coming up with alternative explanations that we know to be explainable because we're rational and scientific. Um, But then you also have scholars who recognize that there are certain things going on there and they're they're like well we don't know what to do with that and so it's just outside of the realm of history like we'll leave that to theology we'll leave that to religious studies um one of them is the appearance of jesus to the disciples like there are a lot of secular scholars who are just kind of like they saw something we don't know what it was they thought it was jesus they're pretty sure it was jesus and so they don't necessarily deny that the disciples saw Jesus, 
they just kind of state it as the disciples believe that they saw Jesus. They are uncomfortable with the fact that there's a lot of historical credibility to these multiple attested documents, all saying that these people saw Jesus. In that, they hold kind of a materialistic framework. But at the exact same time, because they are historians and because they understand how the kind of multifaceted level of credibility that the Gospels hold, they can't entirely throw out everything. So they throw out the littler things, some of the demon possession exorcisms, the walking on water, turning water into wine, because those are not multiply attested. But there are supernatural events that you will see secular scholars saying, we can't explain this, but we're not going to try, because that's not history. That's theology. That's interesting. When we're talking about signs, you have to want to see it. There has to be somewhere that you're wanting to go in order to... Or could we say willing to go? Or, yeah, wanting at least, to at least go makes me go. a little uncomfortable. I think I don't know how you guys, but or at least that just that willingness because I don't want to self deceive myself is what I'm trying to get at, Troy. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. That's probably a better way of saying it because I just think of like you know the the shepherd seeing the star in the sky. Think about the magi and them reading the prophecy. And this is where where I would say that like, they were looking for the sign because they there was a direction they wanted to go. They wanted the to usher in the arrival of the Messiah. And I think just, I may not understand the fullness of, you know, of everything that you're saying, Wes, but it just, it does seem that there's these secular scholars that there's a level of it where they're easy. It's easy to dismiss certain things. If you're not, I guess what you are saying, Andy, is like, if you're not willing to go in that direction in the first place, you know, if you're not looking for a savior of the world, then it's easy to dismiss or just put to the side any evidence of his existence or the possibility of his existence. Because Herod, same thing. He was trying to pay attention for the sake of his own, for the sake of his own skin. This is where things get interesting though in the New Testament is that the disciples are not willing to see the signs. For them, they want to interpret everything through their own grid at first of what they wanted. And that's why I was trying to differentiate between that because yeah. what they wanted was a different Messiah than they got. And right. it was so it's kind of interesting because it's where you need to be careful. I was talking with somebody about this recently, where you got to be careful when you're reading the New Testament, because we tend to want to read the New Testament retrospectively, where we know the end. But when you're reading it, the writers have written it to you in such a way that they're helping you. They're kind of writing it as it's progressing. They're showing their cards. They're showing their ignorance as the story's going along, that they don't know who he is and they're not reading the signs correctly and they're confused as to who he is. And then it's later that they then start to understand who he is and then they get the signs correct. Hmm. Well, and we see this in Jesus's parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16, where um, the rich man wants Abraham to send Lazarus back to warn his brothers. And what's the response that Abraham gives? He says, even if someone rises from the dead, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe that person. And I think this testifies to the fact that really the miraculous story of Jesus, it starts before the gospel of Matthew. It starts before that divide between the Old and the New Testament. It starts way, way back at the very beginning when after the fall, God promises that you know there will be the, the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. And even on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus appears to those two individuals, 
and he chastises them. And then he shows them, as it says, uh, where he is in all of the law, all of the law and the prophets. And I think in one way we can verbalize that we want tangible evidence that we can see, that we can hear, that we can touch. But in another way, if we're not holding to uh, the word of God in a way that the spirit has revitalized it to us, it's, it's not, it's not going to hit us in the same way. We're not going to see the miracle for what it is. I believe it's the end of Matthew's gospel, somewhere in Matthew 28, where Jesus is appearing and he's talking to a group of people. And there's this very odd statement where it says, some believed, but others doubted. And mm. it's like, wait, <laughs> that's Jesus. <laughs> like back from the dead, Jesus. And they're like, well, I don't know. And it's kind of that <laughs> like echoing of the statement from Abraham in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, where it's like, I think sometimes we'll give lip service to us saying, well, you know, I'd believe if Jesus appeared to me. But mm. I, I think there are some people who, who unless the supernatural work is done, which we've already talked about, you know, in their hearts, they're still going to come up with an excuse. And that's where they're not going to see what the sign is truly pointing to. Yeah, and the just to kind of piggyback off of what you're saying to be open to the possibility of miracles and signs and wonders. And I think it's it's really important because, for example, somebody like Richard Dawkins is notorious for saying, Yeah, even if God were to show himself to me, I still wouldn't believe because it's to me it's more likely that I just went insane, right? Than that there actually be a God that could render the heavens and descend down just for me kind of thing. But one thing I find is really with miracles and signs, if we focus too much on the sort of the mechanism side of things, we kind of miss the big picture, right? We miss the richness of it. We miss the context of it. So I've seen something like this, for example, a commentary on Jesus feeding the 4,000. And they're trying to, like, this one commentator was trying all kinds of things to to figure out how could Jesus have done it? Could Jesus have hidden all the bread and fish in some kind of a cave where the disciples then kind of brought it, all that kind of stuff? I'm like, and I'm looking at this going, you're looking in the completely wrong direction, right? If you're just kind of, if you are just open to it and take the text on its own terms, then you're going to see that there's something way more significant. Jesus is trying to tell people something by doing this. An important point with regards to this con the, this uh, conversation we're having about signs is that signs exist today. Uh, that signs aren't just something that exists in the Bible or Bible times sort of idea. But God is still at work in our lives now as he was then. And, and I remember a significant uh, sign that happened in my life, a, a miracle, if you will, was, uh, and you probably heard from my story that I grew up very poor. And my mom, uh, you know, raising four kids on her own, uh, didn't have a lot of money. And when she first started going to church, uh, people found out, you know, that we didn't have very much money. And But there was this one week that my mom was just short uh, it, with money and food. And there was like a knock at our door and we walked, we opened up our door and there was a bag of groceries at our front door and there was nobody there. And this was one of those, you know, miraculous moments. It, it was, it was a sign, if you will. And, 
and just like you're talking about, Steve, you could miss the the implication of this sign and think that it's a that it's about this food or the fact that I didn't know we didn't know who it was or whatever. But but it's pointing to the fact that as Jesus talks about in his sermon in Matthew five six seven, that God loves you, right? And God's God's with you and will and will take care of you. This was a, an important moment, you know, for my mom and even had a, a significant influence on on us kids watching God, watching God's provision in this way. And I, and I, but I just want to make a, an important caveat here that people need to appreciate about signs and the miraculous is that these are all interpreted both in the Bible and now through the grid of scripture. So the signs yeah. that, that were happening then were being interpreted through scripture, but the signs happening in our lives need to be interpreted through scripture. So in other words, it's not like God's going to give me a bag of groceries and then reveal, you know, some new and hidden truth that I'm the Messiah, right? Or that God's doing something else, right? Like, no, God's God's story took place and we're a part of that story and God's still working out that that story. What was that? That God came to defeat sin, right? To defeat evil and that we can be reconciled to God. That this story is what's taking place, and those signs are within that context. So, so here's a question for you guys. Um, since we're kind of in this Advent season, going to the Christmas season, what does the birth of Jesus like? What is that a sign of? I think it's a, a sign similar to this bag of groceries that God's with us. God hasn't abandoned us that God is still providing for us. But what we need to appreciate is that your greatest need isn't a bag of groceries. That that the your greatest need, the greatest miracle that you are in need of is being reconciled to God. And that this is our hope that's firmly fixed in Jesus is that he has accomplished that and he is accomplishing that uh, in us. And that's that that concept of sanctification. It's it's been finished and it's being finished in in our lives and so this then becomes that miracle and that sign that I'm that I'm celebrating is God's work in my life that I'm so thankful for yeah the birth of Jesus is is God's redemptive plan and by him living a, a, the life that he did and redeeming us on the cross it really gives us hope and it's such a joy that we get to be a part of that story, that we get to be a part of his redemptive plan. As, as Andy was saying, and, and as scripture says, it, it, it is finished, but that the kindness of God that he would allow us to be part of that unfolding means that we get to be active in that process and not get so caught up with, with the end of the road as to where that sign is leading. The goal is not to get caught up with that. So Troy, it, it makes me think about that bag of groceries that you could be God's agency in this world. Yes. You could be the miracle. Yes. As this person's just buying groceries would never think that this is miraculous, but leaving this bag of groceries is performing this act of God. We are a beacon that is supposed to draw people, you know, and this is like we, you hear all the metaphors, you know, a, a ship coming and seeing the lighthouse. You are a beacon of safety. You are a beacon of a landing place. And that is such that that is something that we shouldn't take take lightly. Being made in the image of God, being made with intention to draw men to Him, 
it is such it is such an honor. It, there is a weight to it, of course. The beauty of it being a finished work means that we don't need to get bogged down with doing it imperfectly. We can also look at the fact that the incarnation, Jesus is coming into the world, is an inbreaking of God into this reality in a way that is expressed through Mary's reaction to the news of her son, right? In in the tradition of the church, we call that passage in the Gospel of Luke, the Magnificat, right? It's Mary's hymn. It's the song that she sings. And I think what that, what that communicates is, if you go and you read it, um, that God accomplishes all of his plans. And I, I think I've said this before. Um, uh, Steve and I did a Christmas podcast last year, a year before, where I kind of highlighted this fact is that, you know, the birth of Jesus was not from on high like the degrees of Augustus or the brutality of Herod, but God and the message of Christmas is that he's achieving his purposes from below in the lowliness of a manger with shepherds and livestock. And like Steve said, with, with foreign magi, right? And every detail about the Christmas story, and then obviously the subsequent life of Jesus as well, it states that God will reverse the mess. And by so doing, first, gets his own hands dirty, right? He's not conquering, but he's humbling. And mm -hmm. he will heal by being wounded. He will save by sacrificing himself. And in that way, the manger is a throne and the works of God are a beacon, that light on the hill you were talking about, Troy. God intends to turn everything upside down. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning into the AC podcast. Again, this was part two of our series called Miracles, Signs, and Wonders. So if this is the first time you're hearing it, make sure you go back to the previous episode where we spoke about the miracles of his love and also tune in next week as we finalize this series. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, so make sure to like and subscribe on all your favorite streaming platforms as well as YouTube. If you have any questions or you'd like to interact with us online, feel free to reach out to us at info at apologeticscanada.com. But until next time, as always, love God, love people. Bye for now.